All right. So we are going to read a portion of scripture here. If you remember last week, um, God, you know, reminded and, and reiterated the Abrahamic covenant to Abraham, the promise that he made to make him a great nation and give him plenty of descendants. Well, this is a portion of scripture where Abram and his wife Sarai decide they're going to help God out. You ever try to help God out? <laughs> doesn't really work. Sometimes God doesn't need our help. He just needs us to wait and be ready for when he's ready to bless. See, the Abrahamic covenant, as he displayed last week, was unilateral. It was solely wholly dependent on God himself to bring it to fruition. It wasn't a conditional promise. The, early on, the condition was just remain in the land I gave you. And so he's been faithful. He's been doing what God's <coughs> called him to do where he was at. But tick-tock, right? Oh, the waiting game. Anyone here like to wait? Waiting's our favorite four-letter word, isn't it? Wait, wait. When God says wait, oh, we lose our mind. And so we're going to see here, uh, Genesis 16, verse 1, it says, Now Sarai, Abram's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarai said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please, go into my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abram heeded the voice of Sarai. A couple things going on here. Is Sarah blaming God for her barrenness? Do you think there's a little bitterness there? Like, hey... God, hey, don't you know, like, hey, I've been waiting. She's right. I mean, it's God who's withholding her ability to conceive a child. Uh, God is no respecter of our clocks or our calendars. Isn't that painful? You know, God will oftentimes give you a promise. He'll tell you who you are in the kingdom of God up front even though you're not there yet. You know, God, we have a pithy saying, God does not call the equipped, he equips the called. But oftentimes God comes into your present circumstance to tell you who you are scripturally, not who you think you are or what your ego is or what people talk about you. He'll tell you, and sometimes you'll just be like, huh, yeah, yeah, right. <laughs> and it's not like God makes a gag call. A call. It's, it's more like God is, is just putting this on deposit so you can start preparing in your heart for what he's about to do through you and in you and the people around you through your life. You've heard the saying, the road to hell is paved with good intentions. <laughs> and this is an example. This is, going to be, this is going to be the second major moral failure of Abram recorded in the scriptures for us. But it, 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 it's birthing in Sarai. She's getting impatient. And in our, in, in our impatience, we want to help God out. She wants to show God that she's prepared and ready to be in God's will. You know, put me in coach, as one of our friends used to say. Right? You ever, you ever, you ever try to like jockey for position to 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 kind of get the attention of a teacher or a, or some a boss at work? Like, hey, I'm ready for you to just give me the promotion. And she found a loophole. See, God told Abram that his descendants were to come from his body, and so Sarai may be assuming the flaws with her. Maybe, maybe she's the she's the defect here, and that. She is going to find what's called a cultural loophole to bring about the promise of God to produce an heir. In the Middle East, this is common to have a surrogate mother, right? The, the woman of the house, if she couldn't bear children, she would then bring up a handmaiden to then um, bring forth the heir for the family. That was a cultural loophole. But the thing is, is that's not how God works, right? God doesn't respect the cultural loopholes. Just because something's legal in our land doesn't mean it's correct, doesn't mean it's right, right? God has a standard, and he's, his ways are not our ways, and our ways are not his. And so he's able to bring the air through Sarai. But the idea here is without faith, you cannot please God. So in this, Sarai's having a lapse of faith. Instead of patiently waiting, she forms a plan. Right? Anyone here the captain of the overthink team? You think you have to solve all your own problems. You have to bring forth God's will. You have to plot. You have to scheme. You have to try harder. You've got to do this. 
right? You, you turn into, I'm going to use, I'm going to date myself. Some of you guys, you old timers, remember Eddie Haskell? He'd always butter up Mrs. Cleaver. He'd come in with the soothing soft words. Hey, Mrs. Cleaver, nice pearl necklace you have today. Oh, what a wonderful day. But he was the con. He was the schemer, right? And, and so we think we got to kind of like help God in, in what he wants to do with us. But that's not true here. God's not going to respect their attempt. It's going to create a problem. You know, when you, when you read the Middle East crisis going on today, the Israelis versus the Arabs, it stems back to 16. This is where it all begins, guys. Um, then Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife. After Abram had dwelt 10 years in the land of Canaan. Now, 10 years ago, they've gotten the promise. Sarai is now 75. Abram is now 85. Time is wasting from their point of view. Tick tock, right? Just think, you know, God's telling them you're going to have a child in 10 years of not having any kind of indication of pregnancy. To, to a woman in the Middle East at this time in history, to be without a child was almost to be cursed by God, right? The, the idea of barrenness was not something looked upon, and so she's probably suffering some embarrassment. So what does she do? She gave Hagar to be his wife. This wasn't just a one and done. This is, here you go, let's add her to the harem. Let's create a harem. How difficult was it for her to do something like that? This wasn't, this wasn't something that was painless. It was culturally appropriate. But you've got to remember, if, when you read in Hebrews, right? Hebrews 11.12 gives us, gives us a little insight what God was trying to do with this family. It says, Therefore from one man and him as good as dead, underline that part, were born as many as the stars in the sky in multitude, Innumerable, innumerable as the sand which is by the seashore. So God is waiting for Abram and Sarai to be good as dead. Dead, dead. Why? So that they would know it was God. That's when God brings the promise to be, where he brings his plan to fruition, when he's wore you out, when he's taken away any ability for you whatsoever to leave your fingerprint on the matter, that's when God acts. Because he alone wants the glory. He wants to show himself true. He wants to show himself good. He wants to show himself that he doesn't need people's help. And so God will bring about what he needs to bring about in his timing. But often he's got to, in, in a lot of respects, get us out of the way. But when you look at her idea, man, we have to be careful when our wives give us a plan. Because can it be the test? We were joking this morning. Oh, honey, I don't need anything for Christmas. That's, that's the test. You, you better go out and buy something, right? Buy her whatever size hunting boot you wear. That way when she doesn't like it, you can take it for yourself at least, right? It's the thought that counts. But is she giving him the test? Like, I'm going to put this ridiculous idea and I just want to see how you react. <clears throat> or is this just her own fact, reason, and logic? I don't think Abraham begrudgingly put up a fight here. He was like, all right, honey, well, we better, we better get to the Lord's work. Let's, uh, let's set her up in my tent. What do you think? Let's not, let's not waste time. Here you go. We'll, we'll, oh. Do you think he was pretty consensual to this? Yeah, I, I, think, I think there was something there. He didn't want to miss this opportunity to die to self. This is ministry. He's got to take one for the team. He has to help God out. Husbands, here's our application. Husbands, you need to listen to your wives. You just don't need to do what they say. Adam listened to his wife when God said he shouldn't have back in the garden. But then we're going to see in Genesis 17, in our next chapter, there's a time God tells Abram, you need to listen to your wife. Now, the idea is don't ever disregard your wife for advice. The thing is, is you two both need to pray and seek the Lord together and come into agreement and have some unanimous decision-making, right? You need to have it prayerfully brought before the Lord. 
You know, when, whenever in a family, when the wife and the husband are not in agreement over a decision, you need to wait. You need to hesitate, right? When God's calling you maybe to do something, you've got to be patient. You've got to let your husband be before the Lord, and you've got to let your wife be before the Lord and let their hearts be settled together. We're not to disregard each other. God, God has built in that safeguard here, but clearly none of this indicates that they went before the Lord with this plan. They're just thinking God's going to bless it because it makes sense. Be glad when your plans don't succeed. Be real concerned when your plans do succeed. When God blesses your facts, your reasons, your logic, your five-year plan, be careful. And that's what's going to happen here. God's going to allow this, and it's going to create difficulty. As I said, this is where the Middle East conflict arises. So he went into her, he con- they conceived. Verse 4 says, when he went into Hagar, and she conceived, and when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Whoa. Something happened in Hagar's heart. She was clearly looking down upon Sarai here. She, something about her, the way she looked at Sarai. Isn't that true about our eyes? Our eyes tell the truth, right? People can smile, but their eyes will be sad, right? You can look into a person's eyes, and you can tell a lot about what's going on in their heart. You can't fake it. Well, you know, one of the things I look at with this family here is they're just like people are today. They're no different whatsoever. And it's comforting because I find myself oftentimes in the scenarios of Old Testament saints. And, and so um, we're all of one flesh. We all react the same way. Because then what happens, what does Sarai do? Verse 5, it says, Then Sarai said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I gave my maid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judged between you and me. Okay, guys, you've been in this situation where she goes, Honey, I want you to pick where we're going to eat tonight. Then you go to some place that you may like, and then she sits there. This place stinks. I ordered the wrong food. It's your fault, right? You always blame your husband if you let him pick, you know? But then, as a man, you would let your wife pick, and it's usually Applebee's, right? My daughter, if, if she could spell. She could spell the word Applebee's. That's why we don't go there anymore. <laughs> but the idea is we go there, and then she orders something, and it's bad. And then my wife goes, why did you let me pick this place? This place is garbage. You should have picked for us, right? You can't win. You, 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 you're darned if you do, darned if you don't. So what is her result? She pitches the idea. He consents to it. The handmaiden hates her. She blames her husband. She becomes bitter towards her husband. Is she right? Well, yeah, but no. She should have been repenting here. She should have examined herself and said, hey, I was wrong. Right? I went about this the wrong way. I shouldn't be bitter at her. I shouldn't be bitter at him. Right? I stand alone before the Lord in all this. But the other side of it is, Abram, rather than leading, he appeased Sarai. He took the path of least resistance. In fact, he created the very situation he wanted to avoid. Right? What he should have done is taken his God-given authority in leading his home, right? preventing this decision to even be presented, Right? He should have sought the Lord. He, he, should have, he should have not heeded to right, the voices around him. Right? He appeased. He's a people pleaser at this point. He was giving in. He didn't want the fight. Right? Isn't that true with us men? Sometimes we, we, we give in to our friends and our family, our coworkers, our wives, whoever is chewing on us because we don't want the fight. We just give in. We give land for peace. And so what happens is because she senses he's not leading, she's double frustrated. Not only did this plan not work, second, she's even more frustrated knowing he could have prevented this, right? 
Your wives will pick on you guys because they may not know it at, at the time, but they knew you should have led here. And so we need to protect our wives from themselves because people get emotional. Never make a decision, especially women. Don't make decisions emotional. Men, don't make decisions emotional. Like, let time, right? Don't just make a snap judge decision just because you don't want to deal with it. You know, you need to deal with the conflicts in your home, right? The Bible tells us don't let the sun go down on your wrath, right? And you're going to find when you're married, there's going to be plenty of sleepless nights where you just have to, you have to acknowledge the problems. You can't just, you can't just let it go unchecked. You got to do maintenance. But husbands, the buck stops with you. <clears throat> you, need to, you need to listen to your wife. If anything, just validate her concern. I hear a lot of women, they'll say, I just want to be a submissive wife, and they'll never say anything to their husband when he's blowing it. I, I've heard it where, where they've, they've not reached out to friends and family when there's, when there's been some, some, some problems or maybe, maybe a clearer thought. Maybe, maybe people with objective uh, opinions could come in and be like, hey, what do you see as the real problem here? They've just decided to just struggle through it and just sweep it under the floor, and it resulted in greater problems. That's not what the scriptures teach us. You need to make those decisions prayerfully. You need to use other people around you. But also, too, you need to protect husbands. Husbands, you need to protect your wife from the other members of your house, right? Your kids, you got to put your kids in their place, right? The scripture says, children, obey your parents. Period. You need to teach that in your home. Mom and dad are the law, okay? Dad, you should be, you should be the bully. You should teach them the fear of dad, right? I hope none of us had kids to have friends, right? What will happen, if you've raised your children to be your friends, you're going to die alone because they're going to grow up, get old, have kids, and they'll be like, my dad was a passive, weak fr friend of mine, rather than like, man, he really brought the hammer when I needed it, you know? And so be the bad guy, okay? But you gotta protect your wife. Your wife is your number one asset. Your wife is your number one relationship, and you need to protect her so that they don't create an attitude towards her, you know? When your kids are mouthy to your wife, you sit them down and say, you're talking to my wife like that. Stop it. There was, con there was some contempt in Hagar's um, continence towards Sarai here. So Abraham said to Sarai, Indeed, your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarai dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Woo! Wait a second. Wasn't she his wife? Now she's reduced her to being property. Indeed, your maid. Oh, oh, conveniently, when it was suiting your narrative, she was your wife and you had your way with her. But now that she didn't work out the way you intended, now she's back to being property. Well, he needed to protect Hagar as well. Sarai now is going to go after her. She's taking a shot. It says she's dealing harshly with her. Was it physical abuse? Was it verbal abuse? Either way... Something was not correct, and Abram copped out, and he should have protected Hagar here. So, how does Hagar deal with the situation? Well, she's a runner. You know what her, main, her name means? It means flight. Right? It's funny how the Holy Spirit picks those names for the, for the uh, narrative here, but no one in this narrative does well. Amen. Because you know what? I find myself in my own narrative not taking the test and, and getting an A or a B, maybe a C minus, where everything just goes to pot. Everything just, just goes haywire. But you know what? God doesn't start over, does he? He doesn't go find another family. Sometimes we wish he would, right? But here's the thing. Here's, here's the application. Grace says you can't quit. We stand before the Lord based on his unmerited favor, his grace. It doesn't have anything to do with, with good, bad, or ugly. It has everything to do with who he is and what he wants to do in your life. And he often takes, he takes a lump of clay to make a beautiful piece of pottery from it, but it takes a lot of heat and pressure and molding to get there. 
and some time. And so as the heat is put on everybody here, we're going to see that poor Hagar gets the short end of the stick. And this is where the story is going to turn to Hagar. Verse 7 says, Now the angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to shore. So let's, let's take a look at Hagar. Number one, she came from Egypt. She probably should have never been in this narrative. She's a consequence of Abraham's further sin, right? His earlier sin when he went to Egypt when he wasn't supposed to. Sarai probably picked up this handmaiden when she was in the harem of uh, Pharaoh. And so she kind of becomes collateral damage in this. She's an Egyptian. She's a slave girl. So I'm sure her upbringing wasn't all that stellar. She's a Gentile. She's outside of the promise of Abraham's camp here. She finds herself single, pregnant, and abused. Right? Victimized. Right? She's a real victim in this. Like she had, this is, she's just a consequence of these circumstances. She has no rights. There is no advocacy. There's no DHS. There's no women's shelter. Right? She's on her way walking back to Egypt. Right? If you've ever been to Israel, what do you think that looked like? How many Circle Ks and uh, <laughs> quick trips are along the way? There isn't any. She's at a place here. It's a spring of water. It's amazing. Like, they're going to see something about how God meets with women in the Bible. It's always regarding a place of refreshing. It's a place of refilling. Try walking through the desert first trimester pregnant, right? I mean, isn't that where I've never been pregnant? I may look pregnant, but I've never been pregnant. I mean, isn't it? I mean, you're sick, right? Your hormones are out of whack. And you got to walk back in the heat of the day. It, I mean, this just, for her, this was the best option for her. But she's a total nobody in this story. What does she have waiting for her back in Egypt, right? Either way, to her, it's, this is her best option. But you see, there's this character in the story, the angel of the Lord, which I believe is the presence of the Lord himself. This is, this is God taking on the earth suit before Christ coming into a human experience. This is a, what we call an intervention. This is where God, through all the mistakes being made, right? he overrides the mistakes of humanity here, he, and he comes in because he has a divine appointment with this woman who's a pregnant, single, abused, nobody, slave girl. Right? This is somebody the world has no regard for. Even today, when you look at what goes on in the Middle East conflict, women and children are the, the first to suffer over there, right? I've been and I've seen it firsthand. There's not a lot of respect for women and children in these cultures. So ask yourself the question here. When does God appear to her in her life? It's when she's broken. She's broken. She's broken by the world. She's broken by believers. She's broken by People who shouldn't have mishandled her. And this is where God appears. This is actually where God can begin to work in her life. Rock bottom, in my experience, has always been a college education. That's when you have nowhere else to turn. I've, I've got a little saying in my life, when I'm on my back, I need to look up. Right? God intervenes. And he's going to. Notice here, God finds Hagar. People will ask me, oh, Pastor Ben, when did you find the Lord? I'm like, I wasn't looking for him. <laughs> I was looking for another beer. I was looking for another antidepressant. And that's when the Lord intervened in the middle of a drunken rage. And he says, hey, got a plan here. Right? God looks for us, man. He, he leaves the 99 for the one. That's the beauty of the narrative of our God, right? See, religion tells you, you've got to do something to appease God, get his attention. You've got to be good, moral, and upright before he's willing to even deal with you. And that's the problem with religion. You don't know where it begins or where it starts, and then it puts all the, the glory and pressure or discouragement all on you, like you didn't try hard enough. Maybe that's your situation now. Maybe you're, you're in a place where you maybe feel like this person, where you're just a nobody that why would God consider me? Well, he does, right? 
the Lord is very attracted to broken people, right? When you, read, when you read the New Testament, when you read the Gospels of Jesus, he doesn't appear to the theologians, right, in the narrative of the, of the nativity. He appears to what? The shepherds. <laughs> people you wouldn't invite into your own house. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to reveal myself to them. Right? He goes and finds the broken, the blind, the lepers, the downtrodden, the sick, people who clearly can't help themselves. You know, the, the lie of God only helps those who help themselves. Well, that's not true because she's pretty helpless here. This is where giving your life to the Lord becomes more and more appealing when there's no resources left for you. But God finds Hagar. Notice God is going to speak to her. He is going to know her name. She is going to call him God. She recognizes, maybe from watching the, the times Abram built altars and brought in family worship, maybe she watched with amazement and curiosity and saw this man who was a very devoted man to the true living God, and she was fascinated because it was different from the gods of Egypt. She didn't have saving faith yet. I think in this story here, I believe we're going to see Hagar in heaven. I believe there's going to be a, an, 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 a time of saving faith in this narrative here. But not only is he going to speak to her, maybe God's speaking to you today. He knows your name, but then he also knows what she has left, and he also knows her future. And in that, you're going to see, he's going to ask her, what's her plan? What are you trying to accomplish? What would you like me to do? Where do you want to go? But then in that, he is going to direct her where she belongs. He knows exactly where she's supposed to fit in. In fact, he's going to bless her and say that he is going to multiply her descendants. What I like is God is always interested in the worst person in the room. See, God knows your brokenness. He knows your situation. He asks you those same questions. Ask yourself the question today. Why did you come to church? Why are you here today? Well, for me, I don't have a choice in the matter. Right? I have to. I like folders, yeah. I like getting up early. No, <laughs> no, I like coming to church. This is, this is, this is fun to me. I, I like to come to church and listen to what God has to say through me to me some days. I'm like, whoa, man, that's, that's not my wisdom. But then ask yourself, put yourself in her position. Whatever you're going through now, how is it working for you? What's your situation like today? And then ask yourself this other question. What do you want from God? What do you want him to do for you? Let's look at the conversation as such. Verse 8 says, and he said, Hagar... Sarai's made. Where have you come from? And where are you going? God didn't need to know that. He needed her to know that. He caused her to examine her motive. She said, I'm fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarai. Notice how God doesn't acknowledge her as Abram's wife. Right? He knows this is a work of the flesh. Right? He acknowledges her accurately. Right? You and I, oftentimes, we have to come into agreement with what God says about us, right? He knows the story. He knows the score, right? He knows what we've tried to be. Maybe, maybe you've come to the Lord because you've been a failed mom, a failed dad, a, a failed employee. Uh, you've made an attempt at something in your life that it just didn't work out. Your ego and God's plans clashed. And God knows that. Maybe you're on the run. Maybe secretly in your heart, you're trying to get away from whatever bad situation you're in, right? Maybe, maybe you're stuck in a bad relationship. Maybe you're stuck in a bad work situation. Maybe you're stuck uh, with something or circumstances that are out of your control, and you just want to get out. I mean, that was my excuse, you know. I, I, I wanted to just get out of life in general. Nothing that I planned for myself worked out, but I wanted to take the slow hard way, and I wanted to drink myself to death. I wanted to take myself out, but I didn't have the courage to do it the short way, right? I, wanted to, I really wanted to just die under the, you know, drown myself to death figuratively. She's fleeing. Verse 9 this is what he says to her again. He says, The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. Now, this isn't universal application. You need to go back to the situation. 
necessarily you're trying to flee from. Maybe you're in a situation you don't need to be there physically for harm's sake. But the idea is you need to go back and work some things out. Maybe the situation and trial you're in is there to humble you. Maybe it's there to teach you. Maybe it's there for you to flourish and grow, right? And sometimes circumstances are hard. You know, Paul writes, I believe it's in Philippians, he says, Paul, I, a prisoner of the Lord. I don't think Paul wanted to be in prison, but he was leading guards to the Lord. He was writing letters that are now part of our canon and our scripture today. He understood, he says, I'm a prisoner of God. God has me locked into a situation for his purpose. And maybe that's the case here. God, God, look at this from her perspective. What would have happened if she stayed in Egypt? Would she have been what we would call trafficked? Would she have been a sex slave into a concubine? Would she have been a, a domestic maid? Would she have had a short life where she had lots of kids? I mean, you, you don't see the quality of life in this era under the pagan heathen kingdoms. She probably would have died early. God had a plan for her. He says, go back. You belong in the situation that you're placed. Verse 10, then the angel of the Lord said to her, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel said to her, behold, you are with child and you bear a son. You should call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. And that's what Ishmael's name means. It means God has heard. God hears. Underline this in your Bible or on your Palm Pilot. Whatever, Palm Pilot. I just dated myself. On your, your eye thingy. Right? Can't keep up. Palm Pilots. I just dated myself. I need, I need hip replacement. <laughs> cool jokes. God hears your affliction. God knows what you're going through. Just, just come to terms with that. Sometimes I tell God what I'm going through, knowing that maybe he's not aware. Like, I, I know how I am as a child of God. Like, God, this stinks. Yeah, I know. Yeah, I know. He hears what you're going through. And notice what he has to say about not just Ishmael, but the descendants of Ishmael, which it rings true. When you, when you read what goes on in the Arab nations in the Middle East, it says this. He says, he shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man. And every man's hand against him, and he shall dwell in the presence of all his brethren. He's going to be rebellious. He's going to be unruly. You know, I think in the King James Version, it refers him to a donkey, a wild donkey. Verse 13 says, Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? The good news is, Christian, today, God is watching. He's very aware of your brokenness. You are not forsaken, right? You ever feel like, where is God in all this? I do. Where are you, Lord? You know, there's, there's part of me that wants to believe the false teaching of the health, wealth, prosperity movement. You know, never want to get sick and never want to be broke. That's just not true. In fact, God will use that stuff in your life in order for you to experience God. This is where she's experiencing a particular facet of God himself where it says, you are the God who sees. You know, you and I really only take on value before the Lord when we're broken. Jesus says, he says, either fall on the rock or have the rock fall on you. It's your decision. Sometimes God has to destroy your life to save it. Unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, he cannot bear any fruit. I mean, you, you see this principle throughout the scriptures where God can only really use a person after he's gotten them to the end of themselves. But then she says, have I seen him who sees me? So let me ask you a question. In your trial, whatever you may be going through, are you looking towards Jesus? Now, a great way to have a relationship with the Lord, Satan will love to make it all about you and what you're not doing for God. And he lays this guilt trip on every one of us that we're not praying enough, reading the Bible enough, going to church enough, not doing this enough, not, not doing enough for God. As if God needs that. 
But are you, in your trial, looking to the Lord? Are you looking at what specifically he has done for you? See, when I came to the Lord, when I started reading the Word of God, it went from a rule book, right? I grew up in a church. This was furniture. We didn't actually have to read it, but it was a piece of furniture that had a bunch of rules, a bunch of rules I couldn't live up to. But when I came to the Lord, it became a love letter of what God has done for me, right? I still have my very first Bible. The pages are falling out, so on and so forth. And I, I sometimes will pick it up and I'll look at all the verses I've highlighted, you know, by grace, through faith, I've been saved, you know, and there's a little heart or there's a mustard stain with an underlying thing where the idea of where just God is pouring his love on me. And I just had to mark it in my Bible to see what God has done for me. You know, there, there's times you got to read the crucifixion account going, he did this for me. Right? When he died on the cross, he declares it is finished. Right? Because my version sometimes tells me, all right, Ben, you got it from here, right? No, I don't know what to do. <laughs> Are you looking to the Lord? What has God done for you? Well, he's done the hardest thing ever you're going to need to settle first in your heart is did he save you? Did he die on the cross for your sins? Not only did he die on the cross for your past, is he dying for the sins, or did he die for the sins you're in now, or is he, did he die for the sins you're going to commit tomorrow? He's cleansed you of all unrighteousness with his blood. Not only that, is he's, he's now set you on a path where you can have not just eternal life, but you can have abundant life. Jesus says, my commands are not hard. If you love me, you'll obey me. Ephesians tells us, not only does he put a will to in you to obey him, he puts a want to in you. Do you look at the Bible and go, I get to do this? I get to go to church. I get to, I get to serve people. I get to wash people's feet. I get to worship. I get to do all the simple things God has exhorted us to do. And he's done it for our health and our well-being. What has God done for you? Verse 14, therefore, the well was called Bir Lahai Roy, Observe it between Kadesh and Bered. Hagar met the Lord who sees at this spring and a well. Place of, again, we talked, this is a place of refreshing and provision. You know, maybe you're finding that today in church where, like, you're coming in with baggage, you're coming in with issues, and, and God's just meeting you. He's spiritually refreshing you. He's providing for you spiritual nourishment. You know, I, I see this as, uh, I see this as, in John chapter 4, this is another story of where Christ met another woman at the well. You guys know this story. She's a professional wife. She's had, what, four or five husbands now, and the one she's living with now ain't her husband, and Jesus is like, you know, go tell your husband about this. And she's like, but I'm not married. He's just very good. So what does she do? She runs off, and she, she tells this whole whole neighborhood she lives in about what God has done for her and she launches a revival in Samaria people outside of the covenant of God who had a misunderstanding of who and what God is but in John 4 if you're taking notes let's look at what Christ himself says to this woman at the well picking it up at verse 7 it says a woman of Samaria came to draw water Jesus said to her give me a drink for his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again, but whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water springing up 
into everlasting life. Woo! You know, if you understand the context, this was later in the day, right? In the Middle East, you don't go haul water in the middle of the day because you've got to use a heavy clay pot and you've got to climb down into a cistern and draw it up. And the heat of the day by noon is 90, 100 degrees some days. And because this woman was, was a woman with a bad reputation regarding men, she probably did this later in the day because she felt that there would be no other women at the well that would gossip or to, to look at her spitefully or to misuse her or mistreat her or say anything wrong. She's avoiding confrontation, right? It's like the Midwest. You know, you can meet somebody in the, in the Keweenaw and be friends, but then you go to the Walmart and they avoid you, right? That's how you know you really made someone mad when they don't make eye contact with you up here, apparently. They'll really get you. <laughs> so she's avoiding contact, right? She's, she's avoiding being around people, right? Sin separates us from other people, right? You know why people don't go to church? They don't want to be exposed. They're afraid they're the worst person in the room. If people get to know me here, then, then they'll know I'm just not super spiritual. Join the club, <laughs> right? Anyone here not need a Savior? Raise your hand if you do not need a Savior today, right? Raise your hand if you don't need Jesus to save you from you today, right? Like, praise the Lord, we've got the restraint of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God in our life, but we're going to walk open, honest, and transparent. And that's really what happens as God who sees, he, he then can, can speak into your soul. He can see you for who you are, and you can come into agreement with him, right? Because what's the first thing as a Christian we need to come and say to him is, Lord, forgive me for I've sinned, right? We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners, and God understands who he's working with. He understands the, 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 just how fallen every one of us are. Let's just be real here. No one here, you may be better than the person sitting next to you, but you're not who, uh, you're not God. And so in this, this woman has this encounter with Christ himself at this well, and he says, you give me a drink. Maybe you need to experience God through service. Maybe you need to start serving the Lord. Give him a drink. Because she's going to come to this conclusion. He says, whoever drinks of this water that I shall give him will never thirst. Are you thirsty today? Is there something missing in your life? Right? What's worse to suffer from, hunger or thirst? I mean, you ever been? I've heard people have been hungry. I'm not hungry. <laughs> but the idea, though, how long can you live without water? Three days? Three days? You can live, what, 40, 50 days without food? Me? I could probably live a whole year, you know. But the idea is thirst will kill you. Or, like, have you ever drank something when you're thirsty? You ever drank Kool-Aid or Coca-Cola when you're thirsty, and all it does is make you more thirsty? You're just like, mm, it's sticky, and it's designed to create greater thirst so you would buy their product. You know, it's, it's, it doesn't satisfy. But when you drink cold, crisp, cool, fresh water... Look out, bathroom, here I come, right? It just, just hydrates you, right? And the Lord is speaking of you and I have a hole in our heart. We have, a, we have an appetite that only he himself can satisfy. Not only does God fill up that hole in your heart, but he fills it to overflowing so that the Holy Spirit, as he's speaking figuratively, the Holy Spirit comes into your heart and then it spills onto other people, right? It flows out of you like rivers of, uh, what does he say here? He says, uh, like a fountain of water springing up into everlasting life. It's like a geyser. Just splashes everywhere. Verse 15 says, So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore Ishmael. And Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. <laughs> This, this whole story took about a year to come to fruition, but I bet you Abraham aged about five, ten years through this. Right? <laughs> Poor guy. Knucklehead. I love Abraham. He's such a knucklehead. But something happened in verse 15, and it doesn't say it. It's implied. Somewhere in the story with Hagar, she had to go back and make things right with Sarai. Maybe she, who's the victim? 
who very well is the short end of the stick in the story, the person who had the, the most to lose here, she had to go back and initiate and make things right since she's had her encounter with the Lord. She had to own up to her failing in this. But then she got this testimony where I met the Lord who sees. He told me I'm going to have a son. His name is going to be Ishmael, and he's going to be a real wild child, right? Maybe you guys think you have Ishmael at home, you know, and uh, they accepted it. Sarah could have been like, we're not naming him that. That's a stupid name. (laughs) Something happened because for the next 13 years, they're going to be a happy family. God has made you and I promises. This whole story, this whole narrative is he is going to complete what he has started in your life. Don't let impatience cause you to take matters into your own hands. God doesn't need your help. Ask yourself this. Are you like Sarai? Are you blaming God or maybe others for the trial that you may have created yourself? Do you have an attitude of repentance? Or are you going to continue on being God's little helper? Ask yourself, who's in control? Right? That's what we do when we help God. We say, no, we don't want to do it your way. I'm going to do it my way. My way is better. Understand, Christian, the school of the Spirit is not a factory. It's a garden. You know, with a fruit tree, it takes time to grow. Like when you go to the nursery and buy an apple tree, does it have apples on it? It has a little tag. It says apple tree. And you just have to trust at some point apples will come forth when you go home and plant it in, in, in proper soil and you water it and you take care of it. But it takes time. And so we get impatient because we want fruit in our life, right? You ever look at yourself and you're just disgusted. You're like, why did God make... I joke with people. This has been my ongoing joke. I, I'm just as surprised I'm the pastor here just as much as the people who... who come here or don't come here anymore, right? I didn't pick me. I was conscripted. You know, in John 15, you guys know this story. God sets the 12 down. Has a little powwow, has a little conference call here. Tells them this. He says, I am the true vine, and my father is the vine dresser. He says, every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And every branch that bears fruit, he prunes that it may bear more fruit. So you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. He says, abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, I in him, I, excuse me, and I in him, bears much fruit. For without me, you can do what? Nothing. Doesn't that hurt your self-esteem? If anyone does not abide in me, he is cast out as a branch and is withered, and they gather them and throw them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, you will ask whatever you desire, and it shall be done for you. By this my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, so you will be my disciples. As the Father loved me, I have also loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments... You will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. So what's the secret to success as a Christian? How do you bear fruit? Now keep in mind, fruit is not for you. A tree doesn't eat its own fruit. Fruit is for others. Right? You look at what fruit does. You get this shiny red apple, and what's inside the apple? Seeds. So the red apple says, hey, store's open. So an animal comes along, and it eats that red, juicy apple, and then it takes within itself a little package, a little seed. And he takes that seed, and it gets deposited elsewhere, right? We know how that works. And the idea is, is it increases, right? It produces a harvest. It produces more for others to consume. And so maybe you as a Christian today, maybe you feel like you're just broken, you're useless, God can't use you, you're failing, Blah, 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 blah. It says right here, it says, abide in me. What does it mean to abide in Christ? Abide. What's the term abide? Well, what do you call your house? An abode. And you live in your house, 
right? It's a dwelling place. And the Lord says, just dwell in me. You know, a person once told me early on in my walk, he asked me a question. He says, how would you describe being a Christian? What is Christianity? And I gave him all these, you know, morals and ethics and this and that and blah, 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 blah. And he says, no. He says, it's you as a child of God crawling up on your daddy's lap, sitting on his lap and spending time with him. That's how you abide. You spend time with the Lord in your devotion time, in your prayers, in, in, your, in your Bible time, in, in your time just coming to corporate gatherings to be taught and ministered to by the word. It blesses God that you want to honor him with FaceTime. Not, not the app. <laughs> Got to clarify that in this generation. But the idea is, is God just wants you to acknowledge he's worth your time. He's worth getting to know him, developing intimacy, because ultimately you and I become like who we worship, who we spend time with. You never have to tell people you're godly or righteous if you're really reading the Bible and praying and studying and serving the Lord. You don't have to tell anyone. It's obvious, right? The early church, they were called Christians, which was a derogatory term. They were called little Christs because they were displaying attributes that were associated with Jesus himself. And so everyone here can abide. Everyone here can just be alone with the Lord. Anyone here can just, it says right here, as the Father loved me, I have loved you. No one here loves God perfectly from me on down. No one here perfectly loves God. But God loves you perfectly. He knows the worst about you, yet he did the best for you by dying on the cross. He just wants you to suck it up like a sponge. Just receive more of it. But keep in mind, Christian, God's timing is perfect. Psalm 138 tells us this. It says, the Lord will perfect that which concerns me. The Lord will perfect that. Okay? He's at work in your life, even if you don't think so. It may take you a little longer to get to where you need to go, but hey, you're going to get there one way or another. But just yield over to what God has given to you. Look at the resources he's given you. Look at his word, the fact you can pray. You live in a country, you can express your faith. Look at those resources and just take advantage of them and just be like, thank you, Lord, this is amazing. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the example of, of everyone who blew it in this story. Abram, Sarai, Hagar. But that's who you work with because that's all you have to work with. And you're so patient and long-suffering and we love you for that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.